This is Ari Wegner and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going amazing. How are you doing? It's going pretty amazing for me, too. Hey, who's on the show today? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not going to say amazing again. I almost did, but then I said it. <laughs> How about Ari, outstanding? Ari Wegner, DP of Power of the Dog. All right. I, that the, sounds like fun. The new Jane Campion movie. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. They filmed New Zealand for Montana, as you do. Of course. <laughs> it's they look re- identical. It's really beautiful. We've never had anyone on the show who shot for Jane Campion. Jane Campion has made just, you know, some of the most amazing films. A lot of the, a lot of her big touchstones were in the 90s, but she just keeps on trucking. And Power of the Dog is a beautiful film. Stars uh, this up-and-coming actor, Benedict Cumberbatch. Maybe you've heard of him. Fun name to say. Never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, t- total side note, somebody pointed out that Wes Anderson is making a movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch. And I was well, like, if Wes Anderson was going to create a fake British character, they would have been named Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Maybe he'll just keep the name the same. So. <laughs> uh, well, hey, Ben, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world right now. And one of them is the Sundance Film Festival, entirely virtual, not yeah. in person. Very so. interesting. And that was kind of a, a late in the game decision on their part, right? Didn't they come to that conclusion like... At the rise of Omicron, maybe a month or two ago. That's exactly right. And uh, it was really sort of a last minute thing. Everyone who was planning on being there in person uh, had to try to get refunds on their non-refundable, you know, accommodations. I talked to one person who was like, uh, just earlier today, was like, uh, actually a friend of the show, the DP. Uh, he's like, well, uh, I think we're all going to go skiing. I think I'm taking my family skiing uh, next week, whereas uh, we were fair. supposed to go to Sundance. And now uh, now it's going to be a ski yeah. vacation. So. I spoke to uh, one of the Sundance filmmakers for a future episode of the podcast, and he told me that he had actually gone out and invested in some snow boots. Nice. Then ended up not even not le- going to, not going to not, Utah, not leaving the UK <laughs> even like like not not coming over here at all. Yeah, I mean it's a uh, it's a bummer. I feel uh, I'm kind of of two ways about it. Uh, you and I have both been to Sundance. I think you've been there a few more times than I have, but I've been there several times, and uh, I love it. I hate cold weather. I hate it hate cold weather so much and that place is just nothing but cold weather but i love being at the sundance film festival and seeing you know the amazing films and sometimes seeing films there that don't end up getting released you know so you'll see a film that is amazing and blows your mind and has a real independent streak to it and then that's like the last chance you ever got to see it and uh, i have to say it must be a super humongous bummer for all the filmmakers who got in because you know you put it all on the line you make a film and the big success stories you get into sundance and now even if that happened you can't go you know i gotta say uh, from my own selfish press perspective like having to see all the movies for the people that we interview yeah 
it is so much better doing it virtually, so much better doing it online and not having to go wait in the freezing cold out in front of a theater in, in Park City, Utah for maybe like an hour or oh, so, yeah. depending depending on, you know, what I've the, been there, man. Yeah, what the uh, situation is, sometimes more than one hour. There, I mean, it's really a slog and slush. Sometimes and, wait for two hours and then you don't get in. Yeah, there's definitely some stories of, of that sort of thing, too. I, I got to say that. If there was a hybrid model where maybe, you know, there was a premiere and everyone got to watch it at their big screen streaming system, like many people have, like I'm fortunate enough to have here for the festival, and then got to meet afterwards for like Q&A and party. I think there is a festival out there that hasn't figured this out yet, but when they do, it's going to be the model for everyone else to follow because it's so convenient, so convenient not to actually go through all the hassles of trying to pack into that theater. Now, I, I know that we're missing something. We miss an experience doing that. But for me, who's going to have to watch 20 movies, I got to say, this is this is way more convenient. Well, I agree that it's convenient, but isn't the inconvenience the point of going to a film festival? I think so. I think it's true. I think that inconvenience is definitely part of it. But in the inconvenient method, I might be able to see eight, 10, maybe 12 movies. And I'm going to be probably be able to see a lot more this time because of the streaming access. If there was a hybrid model where I could say, like, hey, I've got a hard ticket for this. I'm going to this. Or, no, I don't have a ticket to this, but I could get it virtually. Then I think there's a win-win there. And people are just going to be able to see more movies. And I think that's kind of the goal. I think the filmmakers want the widest audience possible to see their movies. If they can't all fit in the theater, to have that streaming option is really powerful. You can get a a lot, a lot more visibility for your project. And I got to say, Sundance should have figured this out by now, but they can make a ton more money doing that. Well, yeah, you you could buy a festival pass and the the links that they've been giving us, they use an app that plays on Apple TV or Roku or whatever you got and uh, iOS even. And it's pretty amazing and it expires. And so you can't just watch it forever and ever and ever. You don't own it. It's not even like it's like when your favorite movie leaves Netflix, but only, you know, a day after. I feel like they could do a model maybe where there's an advantage to being at the festival and you know, maybe you see the movies a day earlier or maybe maybe like when they replay a movie, they uh, allow it that day to stream as well. You lose a little bit of kind of the horse race immediacy that you get when you go to a big festival like Sundance. And I agree it would open not just them. Every film festival would benefit greatly from having this. But I also feel like if they did that, it's a little bit like when a movie is playing like when Dune came out and it's playing on HBO Max and in theaters, probably the majority of the people are just going to watch it on HBO Max, no matter how awesome it is to see it in the theater. And granted, a lot of people are going to go see it in the theater, but I feel like what's going to happen is the you go to a, a Sundance kind of film festival to kind of rub elbows with the big movers and shakers in the industry. And if those people could just stay home and watch all the films, they well, many of them would. Many of them, some of them, their entire social network are the people who do nothing but go to film festivals. But a lot of those executives would be like, fuck it, I'm staying home. Well, I think here's the numbers game that maybe Sundance hasn't figured out yet. But let's say a fairly large theater, maybe it's got 2,000 seats in it. They're charging 20 bucks a head, or even now, I think it's like 25 bucks a head. But let's say you sell out the entire theater. That's $40,000 from one screening. If you can do it virtually, they only have all, one one venue that's got that many seats too. I, I, but I'm saying if they can do that now, virtually, and they sell ten thousand tickets, that's like two hundred thousand dollars from one screening. That yeah. is not something they were able to do before. And if they can now expand their audience, and you don't have to like you know charter a plane from some far off location to go to the festival, 
I got to imagine that this is going to become, uh, you know, more of a, could potentially more of a, uh, a market for international buyers as well, too. So it's like I kind of feel like if they can do a good job of really promoting the concepts of what they're doing with the virtual festival, they might have a cash cow and make a better experience for all of the filmmakers who are there hoping for distribution. I mean, they have to really lean into it instead of it just being this like, oh, it's an afterthought. Oh, we were really trying to keep it in person. But if they figure out a way that they can you know, split the difference, I could foresee Sundance really doing something that no other festival has been able to, to muster and right I, now. And I feel like every festival probably could benefit from that. And probably the real beneficiary would be whoever created the platform platform that you would buy your tickets on and then watch them on, you know, Roku or Apple TV or Chromecast, whatever you're watching stuff on. But at the same time, it, you're right. I think that it's bringing movies to a different audience. And I, I feel like the film festival paradigm that we are in to this day is it hasn't changed much since, you know, certainly since the nineties when the deal was you'd make a film, you'd shoot it on film, you'd have to make a print, you'd have to ship a print to them. There was no way to stream. None of the things that we have existed at the time. And now we have all this technology that makes exhibition. Exhibition was the hard part back then. And now it's, it's a snap. Exhibition is not the problem to be solved anymore. And so the question then also becomes like, could they have more films in the festival? There are festivals like, um, I want to say it's the Seattle International Film Festival goes on for like a month. Hmm. There's literally, I think, hundreds of films that Whoa. play the Seattle International Film Festival. I had a film play there years ago, and it was like, yeah, I think we were in the first week. And they, it's like, just think, they had like three more weeks to go after we left. I used to work at the Florida Film Festival, and the Florida Film Festival, I think, was 10 days. And that yeah. was just jam-packed. You know, a month is like six years go by before you know it. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember three weeks ago when this filmmaker was here. Well, they're long gone. But could they open up any of the venues, any of the festivals in the world? Could they show more films? Could they have sort of like a Roku channel or whatever that just goes up for a brief period of time? But then like you have, you know, all the films playing at their festival for that window of time for a price. I mean, like an enterprising person could decide like, yeah, we're going to have the festival virtual and in person every year from now on it can be you know fantastic fest or something and yeah i bet the, i bet the festival would make more money and anyone who thinks festivals are a racket they're not every festival is a losing proposition like these every festival loses money that is not true south by southwest is incredibly wealthy i'm sure south by well, southwest there's, there's a lot of money in it but i've heard filmmakers complain like oh you know they're soaking us for these entry fees and having worked in festivals it's like they're lousy with volunteers they're all non-profits they're all barely getting by and maybe sundance or south by southwest or tribeca aren't but I think that what happens is they all have extremely rich beneficiaries, all of them, who are able to keep them afloat because they can't afford to pay that staff. Well, if you've seen the list of sponsors at Sundance, which is mighty long, yeah. just know that the, the the conversation begins at a quarter mil. That's the opening place to get your, to, you know, to be one of those sponsors. It's a quarter, quarter of a million dollars. That That's where it starts. And I'm sure it goes way, 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 way up from there. So I'm pretty sure that it may not be ridiculously profitable, but it's definitely profitable. I mean, they, they've got, you know, the foundations and all these other programs and things, and they have incredible underwriters. So, uh, yes, there's some major festivals. I, I assure you that Cannes would not still be functioning if it wasn't profitable. Cannes? I don't know, yes. man. You don't think you think so? I've honestly never been to Cannes, but I feel like it's a prestigious thing. You know, like it's 
they're able to sort of build on a reputation and be this center of prestige. So, you know, when you're talking about Sundance getting these massive sponsorships, I bet that covers the cost of the festival. But when I say, if I were to say, hey, imagine buying out a ski resort town in the middle of the winter for two and a half weeks every year, that cost of that's got to be unbelievably immense. Yeah. Well, I think that they they own much of the infrastructure that goes on there now. So not not everything, of course, but I I understand that they've contributed tons of money to like, you know, the Eccles Film Center is like, I think, the uh, auditorium for like the local high school. It is. So it's, it's, like, totally, yeah. it's totally what it is. They retrofit a high school auditorium and it's got, I think, 1600 seats. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So anyway, so Ben, uh, we should probably get to the interview. All right. Well, here is Ari Wegner. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We are here today with Ari Wegner, cinematographer of The Power of the Dog, a film that I will personally be shocked if it does not get uh, Oscar nominated for cinematography, if, if not lots of other things. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into Power of the Dog because it's such an evocative and beautiful movie. And Jane Campion is a filmmaker who we haven't, I think we haven't had a movie from her in 12 years, I believe. Mm. But she has, in my opinion, loomed largely over kind of the independent movie scape, making super high quality, amazing Oscar caliber stuff, you know, since the late 80s. Uh, tell me how the project came to you and, and what was, uh, you know, what was the appeal of it to you? Uh, yeah, I've actually, my history with Jane kind of starts well before we met. She was mm -hmm. one of the first filmmakers I ever, I guess, discovered as a teenager. And when I oh, yeah. kind of realized that, that filmmaking could be more than just, you know, it's an art as much as entertainment, that it, that it can be a medium by which you can be just as expressive about, you know, your thoughts on the world as literature or painting or sculpture. Mm -hmm. So I think seeing her short films actually in high school really opened my eyes to, you know, I think like what cinema could be. I was a bit of a latecomer to, the, to, oh, really? um, to, to cinema. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, very, very late. I'd say late high school before I kind of got into movies. Um, Australia is quite a, a tight-knit filmmaking community, so Jane had a long-time assistant, Paola, who, who was a mutual friend. Paola connected us. So we did a, a short commercial, it was a couple of days um, in Sydney, and that How was maybe, I, I'd say about five years ago, maybe maybe oh. even more. It was, it was about three years before Power of the Dog. Know, we, we had a great experience on, on the commercial. It was um, not much crossover with either our narrative work, but we just had a really fun time working together and we shared a similar aesthetic and a kind of rigorousness in, in how we wanted to prepare things and just knew that we worked well together kind of under pressure and enjoyed hanging out in general. So that was always in the, maybe, I guess, in the back of her mind when this project came up. And um, I think it was Christmas Eve, actually, or somewhere very close to Christmas. I was in the supermarket doing my uh, grocery shopping for Christmas and and my phone rang and I looked down and it was Jane Campion calling. And I really did assume it was an accidental call. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she mentioned that she had a book that she had read and that she'd started adapting the screenplay of called The Power of the Dog and, and wanted to know, might I be interested in hearing more about it? What was I up to? Um, and, and But one of the very first things she said was that she was she was looking for a DP that would be ready to start almost straight away that would that would be really up for doing a prep that would last pretty much a whole year so we shot in in January and this was the December of the year before oh, wow 
you prepped for a year? I did. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like official on the clock. It was not like it was a year paid yeah. prep, but it was, I don't know, when, when someone like Jane calls you and says, yeah. what are you up to? <laughs> what are you up to for the next yeah. year? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't actually have other commitments, but in many ways, everything else becomes quite irrelevant. So it, I, it was I kind bet. of a self-imposed year-long prep. We did obviously a lot of official prep in that time, but it was it was kind of my own prep and, and prep with Jane, a lot of early conversations. And we started location scouting pretty soon after, after Jane and I spoke, first spoke because at that stage they had already decided that the film was going to be shot in New Zealand, which is a part of the world both Jane and I know very, very well and in the particular landscape where we're thinking of shooting, it changes so drastically from winter to summer and so it was super important that we were choosing locations knowing what that would look like when we were eventually shooting so that was kind of the, the origin story <laughs> that's that's fascinating and i mean it sounds like almost a year-long master class from jane campion who's one of the greatest filmmakers alive today i can't imagine saying no to that like were you testing were you like bringing out the camera and framing up shots and bringing in models or actors or stand-ins or something and, and just trying stuff out or, or was it more conceptual like how are you going about it um i always um i always hear about these amazing camera tests that people other people must do when they're testing but for some reason <laughs> it never feels like that's a i've never been in a situation where that's been um an option when it was more like I guess taking those location scouting stills and putting mm -hmm. them alongside kind of archive photos or you know I took quite a few photos on 35 mil or like medium format in those locations as well and trying out what just kind of grading the location photos putting them alongside other photos we liked and mm -hmm. trying to find a unified look I guess it was something that Jane and I talked about really early on about the color palette was really key and and I guess unifying everything because we were you know we're in New Zealand trying to create Montana or in 2020 trying to create 1920s we're mm. doing we're building a house that should look like it's 50 years old that's <laughs> yeah. going to be really just the paint still drying on we're putting cattle on a sheep farm we're doing a lot of VFX and um, you know shooting out a sequence and trying to create different seasons in one season and, and we knew that it was going to be really key that we could find something to unify it and that the color palette, having a reduced color palette could really be valuable in that. So that's, I guess, a strong decision in terms of the color palette was, was going to be key to unifying the whole, all of those, all of those disparate elements um, and have something for all the departments as well to kind of very early on know what they're aiming towards, art department, costume, hair, everyone to kind of even like the animal department to like what color mm. cattle do we want what um, oh wow all, all those you know all those kind of big picture stuff that all makes sense that that's interesting and let me ask you a question that uh, i'm always interested in how people go about doing this but like when you're putting together a color palette what's the process for you and like how do you record it how do you keep track of it like if you have an arc built into your movie that's like more browns at the beginning and more greens later like what are the tools what are the things that you use to kind of hold all these all these cool creative ideas that you're cooking up Mm. I guess in terms of building it, the first thing I would usually start with is like the, is the location photos because mm. there's things you're in when you're in interiors you can pretty much do almost you know you you can be in control of everything. But as soon as you step outside, there you have 
a vast, you know, it's probably 80, 90% of your frame in terms of the palette is pretty much there in front of you. And for us, that was this kind of silvery grass and, and hills, timber barns and the fur of horses and cattle, got leather and, you know, human skin tones um, and then the sky. So that's kind of, for me, the keystone. And whether from there you want to expand and make a full rainbow or you want to say, let's keep it within what we're seeing in front of us. And, and for us, it was very much, let's keep it within what we're, what we're seeing in front of us um, and not go too far from nature. No, it's what's refreshing about her material, I think, too. I mean, like her work feels a lot like a novel. I mean, I know this is based on mm. a novel, but all of her work kind of feels like it's giving, it gives the audience a lot more to think about while they're watching it than than a lot of movies that kind of spoon feed, like, here's how I'm supposed to feel about this person. Exactly. And yeah. So you mentioned that you storyboarded the film. I mean, like how much of the film would you suppose you storyboarded and how close did you stick to those boards when you were shooting? Well, we definitely storyboarded everything. We storyboarded every scene. Another great thing about Jane is as a director, she really is great at setting up kind of very early on what she what she needs and what she wants. So there was always this kind of month or six weeks set aside right at the end that Jane and I were going to kind of step out, leave the office, essentially, the kind of mm. production office and go stay down closer to the location and just be kind of left alone essentially that all the other work kind of needed to have happened before that point because then she her and I were going to leave and prep the shots and so we kind of had a month where we would every day drawing and figuring figuring it out basically from taking all the information we knew from the previous year and taking into account a little bit at that point as well, you kind of know a bit more about logistics and how long you might have to do something and mm -hmm. what locations are near other locations, etc. But really it was script, the kind of translating the script into shots. And then in the afternoons um, we would go to the location and kind of see if those shots really were going to work or is there a more efficient way to do it or and then at that kind of in parallel to that the, the house was being built by the art department so that builders would head off around four or five o'clock and we would arrive just as they were leaving and, and kind of have, have the whole valley to ourselves really to go through our plans or just find a great shot that we might then want to use for another scene or a scene we'd already done and already boarded, but then another better shot presented itself. I'm so in awe of, of how amazing Jane is at doing amazing prep but staying open to a better idea, yeah. even really up to, you know, that idea might come on take six, you know, that it's like... I think what we should do is this or change an action or change the shot completely or you know maybe we we might have set up a kind of camera move and we decide actually to keep it still or just just being so in the moment during the takes to know whether this this fits in the movie or not and you know being open to anything that could come up the boards were always our plan a kind of on the day like a something to start with and then obviously you know we're boarding without the actors contributions as well which are huge <laughs> you know as you've seen in yeah, the film yeah. so i always wonder about that like if you're doing like an avengers movie and you have a giant action sequence then it's easy to tell the actors you have to stay within this pre-designed sequence kind of a thing but when you when you have a, a piece that's really character driven like this you know and i imagine like if you've boarded something and if you're an actor working for jane campion and she says i want you to stay in the corner you're going to stay in the corner but if you're benedict cumberbatch and you have the instinct to move does how does that like if you've prepped all that stuff what was the degree to which you would be like let's stick to the prep that we did or no 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 what this actor that actor is doing what jesse plemons is doing is totally inspirational let's follow this and change up our 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 plan yeah, well, I mean, there's no prizes for like most 
accurately predicted storyboards. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no um there's only what works and what doesn't work, you know. So, we, we can start that prize. Um, I think I think that I can get that award going. That's a great idea. <laughs> side by side, you know, most eighty percent accuracy. <laughs> Five stars to you. Um, so, I mean, that's a totally legitimate kind of also form of, of filmmaking and some directors, that's their dream, you know, to prep. And I totally respect that as well. I'm, I'm, I'm very, whatever a director loves, whatever their process is, I'm, I'll go there a hundred percent. And I've, I've done that. I'm, I'm also, I love that version. If that's how a director's mind is, is like primed and that's how they think and that's their happy place. And I'm also all about that. Nothing brings me more kind of happiness than having a director, like have a good experience on set. And so for Jane, yeah, that was having, arriving at a de- on a day knowing we had a plan that could work. But then also with that safety net of a great plan means that you're actually free to, to choose something better if it, if it comes along. What an actor can do with a, a flick of the eye or swallowing at a certain point or adjusting their body in a certain way can actually give you a lot of information that you thought you might need, you know, two more shots to say, oh, this is happening, but oh, this person's feeling this. But when it, when you have a great performance, the information can be told just in that in that shot, um, and that's that's I guess the power of kind of cinema and acting that you can see someone's face and know exactly what they're thinking, based on obviously what you've seen, you know, prior to that in the film as well. So, but yeah, I mean, such a pleasure to be in a room with Jane Campion and, and those incredible actors and watch, you know, just looking through the through the eyepiece down the lens and you really feel like you're, I don't know, just the, the first person to see this, this film. In another interview with you about this film, you brought up your spreadsheet of GPS and angles and stuff. And in an interview, if I'm not mistaken, you were talking about how you had to like pick up sides of conversations uh, I always think of it as you know Orson Welles chimes at midnight style where like you're in a different location but you're having to match eye lines and you're having to construct a scene where half of it was shot somewhere else or at a different time and you're marrying is that, is that all correct I think maybe what I was talking about there was actually that in the early prep days I quite love statistics and kind of data so I love to go through and see like how much day we've got how much night we've got how much of summer winter all that kind of stuff and and part of that breakdown was figuring out eye lines that were going to be necessary for example you know we needed Phil to be able to watch Rose at the piano from his room oh Um, we needed I got it I got it wrong but this is more interesting so you're like involved in the design of the location a little bit yeah absolutely I mean it was script really required certain literally eye lines from you know then phil watches rose drinking in the in the alley from his room that we need to be able to see the corral from the kitchen we need to see the barn from the house um and it's very kind of puzzle pieces of how do we move things around and, and are these all possible <laughs> you know it's a bit of a kind of sudoku of of things that this has to go here but that doesn't work with that so and we did change a few things there was a you know like we moved the garage the car to be connected to the barn and, and a couple of other things. Yeah, the, the document I had was, was very much kind of a, an early attempt to figure out how the layout could work um, and, and making sure we had all the requirements to make the scenes work, like the scene when Rose, you know, before she plays the piano, she, she closes all these doors. So the sense of like trying to close herself in, trying to find safety is a room, a house that has like so many doors and, and that sense of behind any door could be something or it feels kind of everywhere at the same time in her mind and it's kind of slinks around and 
for Rose, that's terrifying that he could be anywhere or being hyper aware of where he is. And if you don't know where he is, that's not a good thing. So that kind of big picture logistical design crossover and Grant Major, who's our designer, just the house that we did end up building is such a beautiful and really the work of an architect of something that works for a lens and and feels lived in and and all those angles work and it's such a terrifying thing to say look at a floor plan and say like do you think that is enough space or is that too far or or kind of but but having grant there to say like that's a good that'll be good or let's make the let's make the top of the doors this height because we want to they need to feel high but we want to see them let's make the ceiling this height all that kind of incredible foresight that was a real pleasure to hugely um i don't think we could have done it without grant neither jane and i had attempted such an ambitious kind of build before (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because um, we've, we've yeah. talked to other cinematographers like Checo Varese and Carlos Gonzalez who have backgrounds in architecture. And it's interesting to me that cinematographers aren't usually tasked in as much of what you're describing in kind of the design of the sets, especially a set like that. That's a practical house, basically, right? Like it's... Mm, yeah. Yeah. They, well, we they, built the exterior... Uh, on location and then we built the interior again um, on a stage and you used some kind of like translate thing too for the outside stuff instead of green screen <laughs> again I wish uh, I hear about these DPs that get to use translites um, we definitely couldn't afford that <laughs> oh no we could, um, I wish uh, we had these very basic printed photos from the location um, mm-hmm. I mean they're pretty much just billboards you know if you imagine a big advertising billboard that's stretched over a frame so it's kind of vinyl printouts that and we only had a few of them that we had to kind of move around so that was a big decision and, and I'm really I'm so glad we went with that versus green screen just because the so nice to be able to light an entire frame and not have a kind of gaping hole in the middle of it with a dot 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 tbc (laughs) someone hopefully that looks fine or or i really think i could light to be able to finish a shot and say we got it and it's it's got it we got it it's done yeah you got it in camera i mean and watching it and i'm sure i've seen a million green screen shots that i didn't question either but like i uh, honestly assumed that you shot them in the practical house like when i was watching the movie and i never oh, it never even, <laughs> it never would have occurred to me that you did it that way and but it, i feel like that kind of a thing is an old school technique that works so well when it's done right oh, it's you know so good and and, and, and so, like you so said satisfying it, yeah. To see, see like a, a really cool optical illusion. That's unbelievably smart. That's a great way to do that. Well, I think we're almost out of time. So I'd like to thank you for your time and also invite you to come back onto the podcast because usually the first time we have oh, someone yeah. on, we kind of go into their whole career and talk about how they got to where they got. So hopefully maybe after Oscar season is over, something we can have you back on the show or when you have your, your next movie that you want to talk about. But for now, where can people find you online if they want to interact with you or see your work or any of that stuff? I'm really so terrible with my online presence. <laughs> I'm working, but um, I do I do occasionally use Instagrams at Ari Wagner. It's probably the best place to get in touch. Yeah, I'm not I'm not great with my I'm not much of a social media user, but um, no worries. You're, I do you're, use it you're for busy working. Getting in touch, <laughs> getting in touch with people, it's useful. So that's that's definitely where I'm at. If you need to find me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And anyone who's hearing this, please check out The Power of the Dog. It's currently streaming on Netflix, and it's just uh, gorgeous work. And again, I said it at the beginning, I'll say at the end, I will be shocked if you don't get an Oscar nomination for this. It's just really compelling, compelling, amazing work. (laughs) Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. I'd love to come back and, um, yeah, chat more. We'd love to have you. DPs love to ramble. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. 
right. So that was Ari Wagner. You should totally get Ari back on the show sometime. Yeah, I want to get her back so that we can kind of talk more about like her entire career. You know, we had, I think, 45 minutes to talk, which is fine. And we talked mostly about Power of the Dog, but I'd, I'd love to hear more about like how she got where she is. Anyway, so uh, you told me before uh, that today we have to pay some bills or something. <laughs> yeah, that's, it seems like every week we got to pay these bills, but today we should pay them by thanking our wonderful sponsor, Aperture. Aperture Lighting, makers of a very fine range of products, and Aperture is their high-end line of products and they have a new highest end bad mama jamma of lighting left lights and i think that's the technical turn it is the 1200d it is brighter than two 600ds put together which i mean puts us way way beyond now like 1200 watt hmis it is a massively bright led light and if you needed something to light up a big space uh it this is the one for you uh it's a pre-order right now you can pre-order it over at hot red cameras it's got a bunch of different options we're going to put a link in the show notes so you can check this thing out it is pretty ridiculous the amount of just oomph the amount of output and of course you can dim it way 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 down and it also has their app control called situs link it's color accurate it's kind of ridiculous it comes with a carrying case i mean this thing is pretty incredible so uh go over to hot red cameras check out the aperture 1200d go to the cam noir show notes page for this episode and you'll find a link and yeah it is kind of insane if you need a big led light this will fit the bill it's really really impressive Hey, let me ask you a question. At what point do you think we stop using HMI lights? Uh, I think a lot of people have actually stopped already. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have, have started moving away from HMIs. Not everyone, of course. And there are some incredible lights like the Area M18 and some bigger lights in particular, which are just super practical and robust. But I will say that HMIs have some disadvantages, including their spectrum actually now is inferior to what LEDs are producing. The quality of light out of a lot of LEDs is superior to that of, of an HMI. Interesting. Also, the restriking time for a lot of um, HMIs can be a pain. So you turn the light off, you got to turn it on, you have to let it get back up to brightness and temperature. Uh, also, you got to lug a friggin' ballast around for most of them. Correct. A heavy ballast, a ballast you, depending on what type of light it is and how old it is, it might have flicker. You have to be careful about your, your frame rates and your shutter angles. Uh, LEDs really don't have that problem ever. So yeah, it's a, it's a shifting tide. At what point do you think that like HMIs are just obsolete? They're just, you know, like no one's using them at all, or, or they're just relegated to specialty items. I don't have a that sort of clear of a crystal ball, but I'm going to say 10 to 15 years, 10 to 15 years. Really? I think they're, they're really boat anchors at that point. There's not going to be uh yeah, the way that LEDs are progressing. Yeah. There's not going to be much of a reason for, for an HMI much longer. And now short ends. So Ben, it's that time now. It's that time for our obsession of the week. What is your short end this week? What do you got going on? My pet obsession this week is something that I just learned about today. The, the week is young, and I don't feel like you could have enticed me more like, okay, I just want you to sit down, make sure you're sitting down, uh, and imagine you're me, because I don't know if this would excite you as much as it excites me. Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. is making a stop-motion Pinocchio for Netflix, starring Ewan McGregor. And actually, they dropped a like a teaser trailer, so you can kind of see the style of it, and it's so Guillermo del Toro it's like slightly disturbing slightly charming bug sorry I forgot to mention that Ewan McGregor is playing the cricket it, and, it, and I, it's animated this whole thing is like stop frame or 
It's stop motion. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, Ray Harryhausen or, or The Nightmare Before Christmas style. And just looking at the cast that they have in it, Kate Blanchett, Finn Wolfhard, Ewan McGregor, Ron Perlman, Tilda Swinton, Christoph Waltz, Tim Blake Nelson, and John Tutoro are all in it, amongst others. And the teaser, I think, just gives us a taste of the style. And it, I'm wondering, why did it take Guillermo del Toro this many years to make a stop-motion animated feature? It seems like it's uh, so up his alley. Uh, I'm just really excited to see what he does. Yeah, that, that, that sounds awesome. I, I will totally check that out. I bet it's going to be a little bit creepier and funkier than the Disney version. Well, that's that's what I'm hoping for. And it says the cricket, Ewan McGregor as cricket. I'm like, uh, I bet Jiminy Cricket is a, uh, is a Disney-owned uh, property. But uh, but definitely, I feel like we haven't gotten enough Guillermo del Toro movies. Like, he kind of works at a deliberate pace, which is fine. Uh, we don't need to have a new Guillermo del Toro movie every year, but I love his work. I love his visual style. I'm excited to see how Nightmare Alley fares this year at the Oscars, and I'm just ex- I just want more stuff from him. And the fact that Netflix is making it just means that they're just like throwing giant, you know, they're like wadding up hundred dollar bills and throwing them in at like having a snowball fight with them. So he's got all the money he, he'll ever need to make the show he wants to make, and and that that just makes me happy. How about you? What is your pet obsession this week? Oh, well, it is something that I have not seen yet, but it is now available to be seen. And oh man, we've, we've talked about it a lot on the show. We've had cinematographers who've shot the show come and, and, and talk to us. And that is Ozark season four is now live. Oh yeah. So uh, I haven't watched any of it yet. I got to plan it out accordingly because uh, I'm just totally inundated with Sunday on stuff right now, but I know it's Netflix, so I know I can binge it. So I got to like block out a chunk of time because I'm probably going to binge that show like hardcore, like as much as I'm going to as hardcore binge anything, it's going to be Ozark season four. I can't wait. I, I don't know where they're going to go from here. I think it is possibly the last season. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't wait. Yeah, I think I heard that, that it was only going to four seasons and a show like that, I, I feel like it probably is best if they at least find a point to end it, you know, like a breaking bad kind of a show. Yeah, exactly. You know, some shows you don't want them to go on forever. There's really no point to do that, but I'm very grateful for the four seasons we've had. The first three seasons have been great. I, I can't wait for this one. And no, now it's an amazing show. And now my wait is over. So, so really it's, I just have to get the time. Conversely, uh, I, I started watching peacemaker and I hope that goes on forever. I, I, I can't get enough of peacemaker. Is that the new DC comic hero? Yes. On HBO? Is that what it, where it is? On HBO Max with John Cena. It's it's a lot like it reminds me of the tick in a good way. Huh. And Peacemaker was kind of the bad guy in James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. And when I heard that they were making a series about Peacemaker, I'm like, really? And I love it. Okay. All right. If nothing else, you Ilya and our dear listeners, if you are on the fence about Peacemaker, go on YouTube and look up the opening title sequence for Peacemaker. Watch that. Tell me you don't want to watch that show. I, I guess I watched, you know, The Suicide Squad and it, it didn't leave so much of an impact on me that I really needed to feel like I had to get some more Peacemaker. But if you if you say it's that good, then I'll, I'll go watch the trailer for sure. I Just watch watch the opening titles. Okay. I think if you just watch the opening titles, you'll be like, I get what they're doing with this. And uh, I think his costume uh, looks a little weird. So, OK, you'll, you'll find out more about why his costume looks the way it does. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, hey, Ben, I think that's just about all the time we've got. Uh, where can people find you? They want to, you know, connect with you. 
Well, as always, go on Facebook and join the group Needs a Werewolf. Say hi. Pitch some movies uh, that have werewolves in them or uh, link to a meme or a, a YouTube video that involves werewolves. We're all inclusive about the werewolf thing. And then um, go to benrockonline.com. I actually just like yesterday was tooling around with my splash page. So everyone go there. Tell me if it's good or bad or indifferent. I, I was like, hey, I keep noticing people have all the logos of all the big companies they've worked for and I haven't done that. So uh, I put like, you know, it's like... I've worked in some pretty big companies. I, I, I put all their logos on my splash page. Nice. And I'm like, suck it. Look at all these big companies I've worked for. I could be working for you. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, how about you, Ilya? Where can people find you? They can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, where we're still undergoing some internal renovation. I'm really hoping to be done in the next couple of weeks, but it's exciting times. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, where you can find me, hotredcameras.com. And you can also find me on the LinkedIn. I, I Every once in a while, I'll get the, the LinkedIn requests. And, you know, as much as I don't like LinkedIn as a thing, uh, it seems to be a good way for people to send me their information or to reach out to me about something they want built or, you know. You know, maybe yeah. I'm an old man. I don't mind LinkedIn. Mm. I, I feel like LinkedIn is good for what it's good for. And when people do the wrong thing with LinkedIn, I'm like, up yours. You are not on Facebook. Do not act like you're on Facebook. You are on LinkedIn. I don't want to see your your funny cat pictures. I don't want to hear your political opinions. You're on LinkedIn. Talk about your business, dum dum. I think for me, it's just LinkedIn Messenger. I don't like LinkedIn Messenger. I think is a kind of lousy messaging app, and I always feel it's a not bit, great. Yeah, really, I agree. Kind of weird about that. If they if they fix that, I think it actually it would probably it would probably get a lot more traction than even it does for, for, you know, professional conversations. But it's more like someone reaches out to me and then it's like, Oh, well let's start an email conversation. Cause this LinkedIn messenger just is, <laughs> it blows. It's just not fun. Yeah. No, I feel your pain on that, man. Well, uh, who should we thank? Hey, let's thank uh, Ben Katz, Ben Katz, editor extraordinaire, making sure that we don't sound totally imbecilic on the show. Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, who's uh, composed all the music that you heard. And, I, I, you know, I've been listening to another podcast lately that kind of like inserts like this really sort of like subtle track underscoring what the conversation is. Uh, I think that maybe we should talk to Kay about giving us a little like underscore music we can sneak in when we're when we're like talking a little a little drone or a little like something to like raise raise the tension up a little bit it raise up the drama it doesn't have to be theremin but yeah they you know it could be something <laughs> i want to wait you went right to theremin yes because you said you wanted a drone and raising the tension and i was I like mean, in, in, in the score world the drone is just kind of like any kind of evenish tone that kind of like sits there yeah it's then yeah i know you were thinking theremin so I, I i wasn't thinking theremin but i love a good theremin so uh so there. And let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, who is uh, putting this all together, making sure that we have plenty to talk about. And if you're still listening at this point of the show, just so you're aware, Alana Cody is what who's making this happen. When Ben and I are at our worst, when we're totally slammed, when we can't figure it out, Alana steps in. She figures out how to somehow thread the needle between your schedule, my schedule, and the schedule of others so that it all fits. And that ain't, can't be easy. That ain't easy. I know it ain't easy because I can see the I can see her calendar for Sundance right now. Oof. And it's like this rainbow stripe cacophony of like, you know, 50 or 60 different things every day. It's Yikes. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That's insane. Um, you brought up Theremin and, and I just want to tell people why why L.A. is a wonderful place. The f- first like really long play I directed in L.A. was written by our friend uh, Tom Keish. You and I both know Tom. Well, it was called Frankenstein Vicky. And it was like a late night crazy ass show. And I had the crazy idea of like, what if we had a live theremin accompanist in like who's on stage 
doing the theremin because it's like a throwback to old like Frankenstein movies. So I put out the call and I found a guy named Bernard Yin, who is an amazing theremin player. But in the middle of the production, he had a job and he had to go like we knew this way ahead. So like we had him, there was like one week where we had to get a new theremin player and we found a replacement theremin player. <laughs> this is like this is many years ago. You can't and do that. You can't do that in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> no, tell me another city where in, in in a pinch you're like, oh, well, our, and he had to be able to play "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes" on the theremin. <laughs> tell me another city, New York, maybe, maybe Chicago, perhaps Atlanta, uh, Austin. Pro- actually, I bet Austin is lousy <laughs> I, with theremin I, players. I, yeah, Austin has an embarrassment of theremin players. There's, they're probably ten deep there. You probably Port- get that. <laughs> Portland, Oregon has a theremin club, and and "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes" is their warm up song. <laughs> And they do it on a unicycle. And and I assure you, like, you know, the encore is like Flight of the Bumblebee. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love that. I bet I bet some I bet if you go on YouTube, someone's recorded themselves playing Flight of the Bumblebee on the theremin. It, uh anyway. <laughs> it's epic. All right. All right. I, I really think that's all we have to talk about this week. You will hear us next week on the Cinematography Podcast. That you will. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.